On Guido Talks this week, the EU declares a vaccine war on AstraZeneca, Labour's Q-jumping vaccine policy ignores the science, and David Lammy comes out in favour of a policy that he once called racist. All that and more coming up in the show. Stick about. Hello and welcome to Guido Talks. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines as well as reporter Christian Calgi. This is Guido Talks, the show where we roll through the week of news that has gone on on the Guido Fawkes website. So let's kick things off with how the week started right back on Monday when the EU came out with some extraordinary briefing against AstraZeneca. Now Just to put this in context, AstraZeneca has produced a vaccine that has been approved for around a month in the United Kingdom and the EU is still dragging its feet as to whether it'll approve this or not. But despite not having yet approved the vaccine, they have started kicking up this most enormous fuss over uh, the priority list and and, and how quickly they can get the vaccine um, out to EU citizens. Now, the UK ordered the vaccine three months earlier than the EU did. So it's quite obvious that in a simple list of priority, the UK comes first. But the EU have kicked up this almighty stink, suggesting that the UK uh, should somehow siphon off its vaccines to the EU. But at, at the same time as kicking up this stink, you're getting this anonymous briefing coming from senior people, particularly in Germany, suggesting that the AstraZeneca vaccine is rubbish anyway. So you've got this completely ridiculous loggerheads position at number one, uh, your vaccine is rubbish, we don't want it. Number two, give us all of your rubbish vaccine, please, because we've run out, particularly in Madrid, where they've, they've had to stop vaccinating for two weeks because they're out of supplies. It's really been the most catastrophic week of blunder for the European Union and their vaccine procurement programme. Isn't the vaccine due to be uh, authorised Friday today? Uh, but there's talk that it won't be authorised for over 65s in Germany. Well, this is the interesting point, because in Germany they're doing sort of their own thing. We discussed on a couple of podcasts ago how Germany uh, broke out in a, in a minor way from the common EU procurement scheme, breaking international law in a limited and specific way. And now their domestic regulator is saying that there isn't enough data to assess um, whether the AstraZeneca vaccine is is efficacious enough um, for over 65s, which is uh, curious because, of course, um, the MHRA, which is the vaccine regulator in the UK, which is actually staffed by a lot of people who used to staff the EMA, which was based in London because London has sort of the um, most developed uh, biochemical sector of any country in the EU. This rigorous regulator has approved it in the UK and the, and the German regulator is being a lot more cautious. And I just wonder how much politics is coming to play in this decision. Well, I think uh, that if they're approving it for, you know, 18 to 65, it's been proven to be certainly efficacious with those age groups. And it seems uh, a bizarre sort of hesitancy uh, from Germany that they're, they're then implying that there's going to be this significant drop off, uh, you know, on your 65th birthday, which I don't think will play out. It may be the case that the testing didn't have enough people from that age sample. But uh, I'd suggest that they're being too cautious at a time when they really can't afford to be. Uh, and one of the statements today from Germany uh, implied that the uh, European Medicines Agency may actually allow it, it 
to be uh, for over 65s. It's just Germany are going their own route on this. It would be a bit odd to not vaccinate the most vulnerable group because under 65s, the virus is hardly has any mortality. And this is all against the background of um, an increasing war of words where the European Union has really been threatening um, blocking exports of vaccines from the continent to other parts uh, of the world and particularly to the United Kingdom. Uh, now, the health commissioner of the EU has said that uh, they'll be looking into how they would be able to um, uh, check exports, potentially stop exports, and, and Germany has certainly asked that as well, which led to a, a lot of talk about this rather jingoistic vaccine nationalism that the EU uh, seems to be uh, charging ahead with, not so much an internationalist project as a, uh, a burgeoning state that is being very defensive about its fortress Europe borders. Well, this, of course, you know, Brexiteers have always argued that the EU isn't in any way internationalist. It's very insular. It's just got larger borders than a nation state. Uh, and it's been a complete disaster for European Union PR uh, and branding this week, because on the same day, or the, certainly within the same 24 hours as this whole argument erupted on potential export bans, uh, Britain launched uh, a new uh, COVID global fight to help countries, um, you know, genome sequence new variants of the vaccine and protect the world against new strands of coronavirus. So this has been a, an all-round very good uh, period for, for Britain's reputation, both in terms of approving the vaccine first, getting it the rollout, uh, you know, up to 100 miles an hour uh, in comparison to European states and helping the world at the same time as Europe has just fall, completely fallen apart. Now, I do wonder how much of this is genuinely altruistic. Because, of course, it's not, it's not the biggest coincidence that the three countries where new variants of the virus have been found, the UK, South Africa and Brazil, are also the three countries that tend to do the most genome sequencing. Um, so we've been lumped with this sort of international representation of having, you know, the British virus or the British variant. Well, actually, it's, it's probably quite unlikely that Britain, South Africa and Brazil are the only places where a new variant has developed. So being altruistic in, in, in sharing this sequencing capacity with other countries actually might well, well, we'll start to hear things about, you know, the Spanish variant or the German variant or, or other countries <laughs> further beyond. Now, from international vaccine problems to domestic vaccine problems or manufactured problems, because the Labour Party has come out with an extraordinary policy position this week. The party that has for months been haranguing the government and making sure they follow every jot and tittle of sage advice, making sure they're following the science at every stage, the Labour Party has now decided to not follow the science. Uh, the, the new policy position of the Labour Party is to throw out the recommended uh, distribution list that was drawn up by the JCVI, that Joint Committee on um, Vaccinations, um, that, that sort of showed the vulnerability of the country and, and put, it, put it into a phase one nine group list. Uh, now, this is basically a list that goes down in order of age because we know that the um, virus is, is incredibly harmful for those older and it's basically a linear relationship. As you get younger, it gets less harmful. But also in, their group, in those groups are people with underlying conditions and so on. 
the Labour Party has decided to completely throw this out and throw in all sorts of key workers, public sector workers, people who are basically us. Um, I, we, we, we ran a story how um, the, the definition of key workers actually includes a 24-year-old like myself. And under Labour's policy, that would mean I would get to the vaccine before a 65-year-old. It is bonkers. Calgi, I don't know if, if you want to take us more into that story. Yeah, so this was part of the, the post-PMQ's press release that Labour sent out, PMQ's being the first time Starmer had formally uh, called for this new policy of prioritising key workers for the vaccine. And in, the, in a press release at the bottom, you have notes for journalists. So this is links and citations of statistics that have been referenced. The only problem is that the Labour Party cited this uh, sort of 6.2 million key worker figure. This was taken from the ONS figure, which in turn was taken from the government's uh, list of key workers, key workers being people who are entitled to, uh, to testing priority and whose kids are entitled to go into school. This list included people like financiers, bankers, MPs, journalists, and Labour had forgotten to take this group out of the figures that they were citing and indeed said that these 6.2 million people uh, would benefit from being moved up the list. Uh, it wasn't just an ONS figure. They said that these people should move up the list. So uh, it was uh, slightly embarrassing uh, for Labour. Uh, they knew it was so because at the same time the press officer was uh, arguing it wouldn't get any follow-up from other uh, you know, press organisations. Uh, they were they were really pushing for us not to run the story. But this really Have I been cynical in saying that actually the key workers they were concerned about were Labour-affiliated union members, like the teaching unions? <laughs> because uh, all the other key workers seem to have uh, not no longer be key workers under their policy. But, but, but also, let's be real, if you're, a, if you're a vulnerable teacher, if you're a teacher with an un, underlying comorbidity, if you're a teacher who is over the age of uh, 70, somehow, um, you would still be included in mm. those groups. Actually, if you're a teacher over the age of 50, sorry, you'd be included in yes. those groups. Um, Labour so, rec recognised this because there are over 10 million key workers, but what they did was that they said, well, 3 million of these uh, people... Uh, are already going to get it because they work in health and social care and they're already prioritised. And then another 15% uh, across the whole board uh, have underlying conditions, so they'll have got the vaccine. So what they were explicitly saying is that people who aren't old and people who don't have underlying conditions should be prioritised. Now, we're at a stage where there are a 1,000 people dying on average every day. And the next uh, five groups down, other than the four that Labour say should be vaccinated first, the next five groups down account for around 20% of those deaths. Um, so we got out the, the sort of scrap paper and, and, and did a, a very rudimentary calculation that you can follow through as we published a sort of bullet-pointed list of how we did it on the website um, that showed that actually by delaying uh, the vulnerable categories and, and shoving in those key workers ahead of the elderly and the vulnerable, uh, it would directly cause 190 extra deaths a day. Needless deaths. 190 extra deaths for every day they delayed uh, the priority list. Now, that's, that's Labour's policy. 
it, it, it's, it's entirely, you can, you can work it out there in black and white. It's an extraordinary thing to have, to have done just it, to grab some headlines. It's a, it's bonkers um, moving away from this particular area of science. I mean, we already know that Labour are happy to follow the science when it suits them and not when it doesn't. We've got them criticising the government for not closing the borders last March, even though that is exactly what Sage uh, said not to do because it would have a marginal effect. So Captain Hindsight and the whole uh, Hindsight crew have been going to complete overdrive this week. Uh, not it's just because... embarrassing for them. Sorry, it's, it's, yes, well, not just because. They're also now uh, rewriting Labour history, especially over the European Medicines Agency. Uh, Starmer told LBC, an LBC caller uh, on Thursday uh, that it had never been Labour policy to participate in the uh, European vaccine programme. Uh, and yet Starmer said that we must maintain membership of the EMA back in 2017. And two shadow Labour front benchers said that it was a uh, it was wrong uh, to not participate in the vaccine program uh, in 2020. Uh, so this is deeply embarrassing for the whole Labour project at the moment. And I think we've got a clip actually of Keir Starmer, then Shadow Brexit Secretary, standing at the dispatch box and bemoaning the fact that Brexit Britain would be leaving the European Medicines Agency and having its own independent regulator being in charge once again. Let's have a listen. Why would we want to be outside of the European Medicines Agency, which ensures all medicines in the EU are self, safe and effective? You can let me give three, uh, without the details, the European Aviation Safety Agency, which deals with safety, the European Medicines Agency, and of course Europol, which I worked with for many years. These are the bits of the EU which we which should be seeking to retain, not to throw away. On Tuesday night, I was watching the BBC Six O'Clock News, as you do, and up pops a talking head who uh, was very earnest and um, was a professor, Christine Pagel, and she launched into effectively nothing about her uh, specialism, but a general political tirade against the government and Boris in particular. So the next morning I had a quick Google and lo and behold, her Twitter stream was full of the usual stuff. She was a very committed and ardent Remainer and for years she was tweeting about Remain. She rejoined the Labour Party to campaign to get Corbyn out, which is why I descri described her as a hardline centrist, which went down very well on, uh, on Twitter. But my point is, whatever your political persuasion, when you have a political agenda, and we've said this so many times over and over again, I think it's beholden on the news uh, channels, the BBC in particular, and it is in the rules, to say, this is Professor blah, 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 a supporter of the Labour Party. It's only fair, otherwise you're deceiving the viewers that this is a neutral expert opinion. We have had this uh, quibble with all broadcasters for a while, and sometimes our, our campaign on this has, has borne fruit. But of course, the one thing that people come back to us and say, well, you wouldn't say that about a Tory, would you? Well, actually, yes, we would, and yes, we have. We've run stories about uh, expert activists who haven't declared that they are Conservative Party members and ones who haven't declared that they're Labour Party members. And one of the frustrating things as someone who sometimes goes on television is that I'm almost, al I'm almost always introduced with a political leaning attached. And we've got a video of that that we can play just to have a, a, a clear contrasting example here. Oh, the front pages, let's have a look at what's inside. Tom Harwood has joined us. He's from the centre-right Westminster news site, Guido Fawkes. Uh, 
Joining me from Westminster is uh, the Guido Fawkes reporter, Tom Harwood, uh, who's also something of a, a Boris fan. Uh, what's your reaction then to today's result? I'm joined by the next generation of Conservative activists to wrestle with the future. Joined by uh, Tom Harwood from the Brexiteer News website, Guido Fawkes. Well, joining us now to discuss this is Brexiteer and Guido Fawkes reporter, Tom Harwood. Vote Leave campaigner and now a reporter on the right-leaning online political website, Guido Fawkes. It feels like it's been a while since we uh, talked about the culture war, which continues, of course, to rage on in British politics. But Lisa Nandy reignited the whole issue this week uh, over Winston Churchill. Uh, on Sunday, the Mail on Sunday, uh, provided an article that claimed she'd welcomed a, a report by a, a Labour think tank uh, calling for a peace force to remain uh, to replace the army. Uh, she was questioned about this on Andrew Marr and she flat up denied it, which was really inconvenient for the Labour Party because unfortunately we had the video proof of her welcoming that report and released it shortly after. Let's have a look at that clip. Let me move from Monday to today where there's a report in one of the papers of you applauding warmly uh, a, a, a Labour think tank report which suggests turning the armed services into, and I quote, human security services whose job is to damp down violence. And you were delighted by that. Does that represent your views? No, it's complete and utter rubbish, and the journalist was told so. I mean, the difficulty is that this... But you applauded this... the report, and he's quoted the report. Look, the, I didn't applaud the report. That is complete and utter nonsense, and he was told so before he wrote the story. Thank you so much, Alex, for having me, and also to you and to Harry and to Mary and to David and others for the amount of work that's gone into producing this pamphlet. It just feels to me that this is exactly the right time when we're marking the start of a new chapter, albeit a chapter that none of us really wanted to see. But one of the things that I found really inspirational about this pamphlet is that I think it's based on the belief that I also share, that while we learn from the past, we must never be bound by it. And we need to build a foreign policy that is fit for the realities of this, this century and not the circumstances of the last. And this was followed the next day uh, by some archive footage that we pulled up of the now shadow Foreign Secretary uh, telling the Question Time audience uh, that she couldn't say whether Churchill was a hero or a villain and in fact called it a stupid question. Let's see that. Thanks. Is Winston Churchill a hero or a villain? <laughs> now, this of course comes about uh, yesterday, you're well aware of this, Lisa. Uh, the Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell was asked a a question where he could only give a one-word answer, uh, hero or villain. He was asked that about Winston Churchill, and he said villain because of uh, Churchill's actions during the uh, Tony Pandy miners' stri strike back in 1910. Hero or villain? That's with, well, with no disrespect to Dipesh, who's reflecting something that has <coughs> consumed a lot of national debate in the last 24 hours, I really do think this is a stupid question, and I think this is why you're getting a stupid answer. And, frankly, I'm sick to death of a political debate that tries to reduce things to yes or no, good or bad. But if it was a stupid I'm, question, no, he's the no. shadow chancellor. Why didn't he just knock it back like Grace did as a stupid question? He took the opportunity and we saw what he well, really well, thinks. And, and, no, no, but he, he didn't see what he really thinks because then he's been out this morning having to, talking in real terms about the legacy of Winston Churchill. And, look, th this is really, really dangerous stuff. We've seen it with the Brexit debate and we're seeing it with many of the conversations that we have in our political discourse at the moment. It is poisoning it. I happen to think, like probably most people in this country, 
that there are some decisions that Winston Churchill made that I wouldn't agree with at all. But at a critical moment in British history, he stood up and he made the right judgment call that has profound implications for all of us still now today. And what this daft debate that seeks to divide us has done is it's allowed people in British politics on Jacob's wing of the Tory party to try to invoke the spirit of Winston Churchill somehow as if we're still in this war era and as if, as if we should be still be engaged in war. Christian, I think you're uh, missing probably the best bit of footage that we uh, got, which was exclusive to us, um, where we found uh, fly-on-the-wall footage of uh, Nandy's woke army in training. Let's have a look. Right. Now let's see something decent and military. Some precision drilling. Squad! Camp it! Up! Who get hurt? Whoops! I've got your number that you couldn't afford me, dear, to free. I'll scratch your eyes out. Don't come the brigadier bit with us, dear. We all know where you've been, you military fairy. Two, Whoops! Don't look now, girls. The major's just mince in the dolly colour sergeant. Two, three. Ooh! Well, it might be woke, but it didn't look very diverse to me. It looked very white. Anyway, over to you, Tom. Well, this is all extraordinary because Lisa Nandy is someone who has become a bit of a liability to the shadow front bench. She's someone who styles herself as a sort of anti-woke warrior who understands the red wall seats, who represents Wigan, who, who knows her Brexit voting constituency in and out, and yet she repeatedly has come out with these absolute blunders. Uh, whether it's on Churchill, whether it's on the army, whether it's on just about anything, she seems to be one of the most woke members of the Shadow Cabinet, despite her styled representation of, of being someone who understands the red wall. I, I seriously worry that this is actually a, a weak link in the Labour front bench, uh, despite Keir Starmer, who's a, a London MP, sort of thinking, oh, it's someone from the north, great, that'll help us connect. Perhaps it's actually backfiring. Well, let's talk about another weak link woke liability on the shadow front bench, and that is, of course, David Lammy, uh, who is the shadow justice secretary, and this week called for uh, war-style uh, juries, reduction in sizes to get through the mounting back catalogue of cases, which... Uh, would be a, an interesting proposal normally. But unfortunately, David Lammy had called the exact same proposals uh, biased against black people last June during the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, it's almost like he forgot the Telegraph article he wrote that we and other outlets managed to dig up uh, within hours of this policy being announced. Meanwhile, over in the courts, another name from the past, Jeremy Corbyn, has lost the first round of his case against the Labour Party, his former party. He was seeking to get hold of documents, emails and other information to support his case. The judge threw it out and said he was just on a fishing expedition and he had more than enough information to make his case argument without digging through the archives. Well, Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn are not the only current and former party leaders in a wrought battle uh, that's involving legal documents. Because, of course, north of the border, Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon continue to battle it out. The two people who were once thick as thieves. Uh, Alex Salmond, of course, sort of... Um, 
helped Nicola become his protege, his, his anointed successor. And yet now, in the aftermath of a messy sexual assault trial, we are seeing allegations flying in both directions. And the long and short of it is that they can't both be telling the truth. Nicola Sturgeon says that she didn't know about uh, the allegations against Alex Salmond until uh, I think it was a date in April, whereas uh, Alex Salmond saying she was told back in March. This is all of 2018. Now these completely exclusive dates can't match and it, and it would mean that if Alex Salmond is telling the truth, Nicola Sturgeon has lied to Parliament and breached the Ministerial Code in Scotland in a way that the Ministerial Code says is worthy of resignation. So this is the scale of the scandal that hasn't actually had all that much pickup uh, south of the border at all. And, and in the quite flaccid Scottish press, it hasn't um, really been dug into all that much either. Yes, it's led some newspapers here and then, but it hasn't caught on in the public imagination. And if you were to just compare the situation for a second to what it would be like if there were two inquiries because there are two inquiries into Nicola Sturgeon and her government. Imagine if there were two inquiries into Boris Johnson and his government over potentially covering up sexual assault allegations and lying about when he would have known about them. That, you can just imagine the, the scale that story would be, the, the, uh, the, the rocky waters that would place the government on. And yet in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon seems to sail on scot-free. It's quite the ex most extraordinary story, and I think that the Guido Fawkes explainer of it is the best place to start if you, if you want to uh, understand this a little bit better. I think we'll be covering Scotland a lot more because Scottish issues are becoming on the Westminster agenda as the prospect of the SNP winning the next round of elections and forming a majority government that will push the uh, independence issue. And you can see that's happening. I mean, Boris on Thursday travelled north of the border to visit a vaccination plant for an arguably essential photo op, although Nicola Sturgeon said it wasn't essential. Uh, you can, we point out on the same day that actually English Tories, according to YouGov polling from last year, don't really care about Scotland. They would be not bothered or upset on the whole, in the majority, just by a margin, if Scotland did go its own way, because quite rightly, they can't see how England, per se, will be damaged in any way by Scotland being independent. Um, earlier in the week, we also covered uh, Gordon Brown's intervention on the issue, where he was on Sky News with Niall Patterson, a fellow Scot, who really dragged him over the coals over uh, what he said was a deception at the end of the last referendum. And Gordon Brown, bizarrely, said, well, let's have a look at the footage. There are plenty of people north of Gretna Green who think back to 2014 and feel that they were, you know, slightly sold a pup. I mean, you back during the referendum campaign said, look, if Scotland votes no, you know, within a year, maybe two years, we'll be as close to, to a federal state as, as possible. That didn't happen. I'll quote back to you because plenty of people have sent it to me this morning. This is what you did say. We're going to be within a year or two or as close to a federal state as you can be in a country where one nation is 85% is of the population. The vow and, and other questions that were raised during the, the first independence uh, referendum campaign, people feel that they were being deceived. But, but, but Neil, look at the small print. 
They are the equivalent of what Keir Hardie was asking for when he called for home rule for Scotland. Something uh, near to federalism. But Neil, look at the small print. So there you are. Next time round, read the small print. Let's travel down to London, where the Tories' mayoral campaign has been plunged into relative chaos. Of course, it was never particularly smooth sailing with the candidate they chose, but the comms operation has completely fallen apart as uh, the private agency that the campaign had been using, 5654, uh, has departed from the campaign. Uh, this was a fairly competent operation. Uh, they've been doing the best to polish, frankly, a turd. Uh, they've been copying a lot of the vote leave you know, a style book and Topham McGurring videos, but they've parted ways primarily for financial reasons, uh, we understand. Uh, the Tories have essentially run out of money to fund the campaign. Uh, the campaign have given up on winning, they've given up on policy formulation. I understand there is now just one press officer left uh, in the campaign. And uh, all they're hoping for now is to beat Zach Goldsmith's uh, figure of 43.2%. But frankly, there's no chance of them doing that because as a strategy, uh, they are really coy about talking about the big issue, which is crime. And that's all the Tory activists want to talk about. But the leadership are worried about scaring off inter, you know, sort of centre London liberal Lib Dem voters because they think going in too hard on crime might push their second preferences towards the Green Party or the Labour Party. Uh, it's a complete disaster uh, and really embarrassing, frankly, for the Tories' London operation. But there is some betting that Sadiq could win on the first round of votes anyway, so second preferences won't matter. It's a, very, it's a strong bet. <laughs> Which is appalling given his record. I mean, is there anyone who has sailed by? It's, it's, this is the problem with devolution, right? Um, anything good that happens in a, in a devolved entity, the, the person at the top seems to suck up all the praise, and anything bad, they just blame on Westminster. It's the same with Mark Drakeford, it's the same with Nicola Sturgeon, it's the same with Andy Burnham, and it's the same with Sadiq Khan. They're getting away with absolutely everything, and they seem to be able to blame all of the problems, and London has many, on Westminster. People don't understand what is actually in the their competence and there should be a greater degree of public education about this. I certainly remember speaking to one Welsh MP about halfway through the uh, pandemic in 2020 who said that one of the few benefits of uh, the pandemic was actually demonstrating to voters that the Welsh government is responsible for the NHS and they were very much hoping that the May elections to the Senate would be an opportunity to demonstrate that people have had enough of Welsh governance, but <laughs> I'm not sure whether that will happen. I'm interested the argument you make there, uh, Tom, because the logic of your argument suggests that you know full independence of Scotland and Wales would make that uh, mean that I have no one to be responsible themselves but themselves. Absolutely not. I'm asking for consistent devolution. Take back control. Yeah, yeah in the same way, devolution. in the same way that letting a toddler loose would give them free reign to mess things up on their own. I mean. Are you saying that the people of Scotland and Wales are children? I think they're led by them. I think I've absolutely lost this analogy, but the one thing I would say... <laughs> that no one, 
The one thing that I would say is that no one uh, doesn't understand what Andrew Cuomo's responsibility is as the governor of the state of New York. People understand what his competences are if they're American. Calgary, I know you have an, uh, ant- uh, an antithetical hatred of, of, of anything across the Atlantic, but it does. Sure. It is quite an important partner. Um, but but here's the problem, right? Um, the press doesn't understand devolution and doesn't uh, work with it in the way that it works with policy. Take this week, we had the horrible front pages of 100,000 deaths, a, a horrific milestone. But that's 100,000 deaths across the UK. And proportionally, that's exactly the same in Wales as it is in England. And yet every single newspaper article on this said UK government, Boris Johnson. There was nothing written about Mark Drakeford, despite the fact that his administration has led to proportionally exactly the same death toll. Now, that is clearly a massive failure of understanding of what the devolution settlement is. On a lighter note, I spotted one bit of news today, uh, this week that 31 coppers in Bethnal Green are pay, paying, forced to pay £200 fixed penalty notice for bringing a barber into the cop shop to give themselves a haircut. They said it was for charity, but it was clearly against the rules to have uh, uh, a barber do 31 haircuts in a police station. I don't know where you go with this. Insert your own joke. And finally, <laughs> sorry, we got Christian to do a rundown of the top five uh, Labour calls for the government to do something that the government had already committed to doing. And we got him to do it in the style of Top of the Pops. Goodbye. See what you think. In at number five, on the 11th of January, in a keynote speech, Sir Keir Starmer told the public he's calling for an extension to the evictions ban. Just one problem, three days earlier, the government had already extended the evictions ban to the 8th of March. In at number four, the same speech on the 11th of January, Keir Starmer called for families to be protected from council tax rises. Just one problem, 17th of December, the government had already committed £670 million of funding to enable councils to prevent council tax rising on the most vulnerable. At number three, Keir Starmer calls for more support for councils, citing the Prime Minister's promise to do whatever is necessary. On the 17th of December, however, the government announced 2.2 billion funding boosts for local councils across England this year. In at number two, It's a break from Sakia, it's Shadow Community Secretary Steve Reid calling on the government to resume its daily briefings on the vaccine rollout. Three days earlier, the government had already resumed the press conferences. And taking the top spot this week, Sakia Starmer calling for volunteers to help with the vaccine rollout, calling for an army of volunteers. Six days earlier, however, the government had already launched the Join the NHS COVID-19 vaccine team. That's it for today's list. Mind you, it is only January, so perhaps we'll see you again this time in February for another list of Sakia Starmer plays Simon Says with the government. 
So do let us know down in the comments uh, if you want Christian to speak through some more stories uh, like he did this week. But that's just about all that we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for sticking with us for another Guido Talks episode. Remember, you can watch us as well as listen to us right here on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to us on YouTube and hit that notification bell to be reminded every Friday when we publish a new episode. Also, remember to five-star us on whatever podcast app you're on. That really helps the show. Thank you once again for sticking with us and we'll see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.